Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Podcast. My name is James, and this week myself and Alex are joined by Gian Sira, who's a health tech investor at Octopus Ventures. Uh, Gian previously spent a couple of years in Canada building two biotech companies, one called Pebble Labs, which looked at vector animal plant diseases, uh, and one called Trait Biosciences, which was interestingly in the cannabis industry. Uh, Gian's got a degree in industrial economics from the University of Nottingham, which is where I trained. And according to his Octopus Ventures profile, interesting fact, he spent two months training in Muay Thai boxing in Thailand and spends a couple of weeks a year out there training even now. So, Gian, welcome. How are you doing? Thanks thanks so much, guys. Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Cool. So, Gian, do you want to tell us your story and tell us a little bit about those companies and how you got into Octopus and investing? Yeah, sure. So, um, I was very lucky in Nottingham. I was able to start quite a few companies there. So that's really how my journey of entrepreneurship started. Uh, there were quite a few good and bad ones there. So there was hiring services. Um, I used to do house parties and uh, night flight events. I also tried to start a eBay for students. Um, and then the last one was a, a social impact startup, actually. So we were basically going into charity and we were focusing on consulting, which is really interesting. So after that, I basically decided, what do I want to do in my life? And one of my passions was skiing. So I thought, this is probably the only time I can actually go ski in my life. So I decided to go to Canada and be a ski instructor. And then about three weeks into being in Canada, I met these people on a gondola who were starting a biotech company, actually. So obviously, I don't have a biotech history. I'm an economist at background. Um, but for me, I was obsessed with startups. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So this is a great example of where I could actually be a co-founder with uh, small seasoned people, which is really amazing. So I actually was there for about three years um, helping build this company. And it was, it was great to be a co-founder on the business development side 
and really be a part of the kind of fundraising, growing a company and the operational side of that startup. Uh, so away from there, I three years in, I decided to exit the company uh, as I wanted to come back to, L- back to London and then focus on, on the fundraising side, et cetera, which I found the most interesting for me. So came back to London and was fortunate enough to get into Oxford Ventures. And then Oxford Ventures, so we are um, a venture capital fund in Europe. We focus on C to Series A as a stage. Uh, usually kind of ticket size is a million pound plus, plus for seed, three to five million for Series A. Um, and we're a gem, generalist in scope, which is really interesting. But then I focus just on health. So we have three different pods, which are specialties within these. Um, we have money, which is fintech, prop tech, et cetera. Industry, which is more of the frontier technologies. And then health, which is where I fit in, um, which I absolutely adore, um, which is amazing. Cool. It's, it's, it's funny how things happen sometimes. So we tell our startups all the time, you know, and, and particularly entrepreneurs that want to get into startups, you know, put yourself in the right place at the right time, go to loads of meetups, go to this, go to that, you know, try and find other entrepreneurs. You met your co-founders in a gondola while you were skiing. I did not know that. Yes, yes. Um, it was quite funny, actually. And for me, I've always been someone, and, and that's probably why I'm good in the VC industry, but I've been very much based around and want to speak to as many people as I can. So for me, it was a 40-minute gondola going up and down. And for me, I was just like, I can either spend 40 minutes in quiet or I can speak to people. And I was quite lucky in that regard. Um, some people say you make your luck, but for me, I definitely feel I was lucky at that point. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about those early stage companies and how you got into them and, and those early stage, I guess, conversations and fundraising. What kind of got you bitten by the fundraising bug? I mean, yeah, for me, the fundraising bug wasn't actually during university. It was really with the other biotech companies because um, they're obviously more serious companies where we actually wanted to start fundraising. But for me, funnily enough, how the startup world happened for me wasn't really due to me wanting to be an entrepreneur necessarily. I was definitely interested in my career at university and what I could do to improve that. And one way for me to do that was to be starting things, being an entrepreneur, etc. I just thought of it as a way to make my CV better. But in the end, I actually found that I loved that kind of stuff. And it was kind of what I wanted to do. So it was, it was I, again, I kind of fell into it. Um, which I'm very happy about because it made me realize I want to be in the startup sphere rather than in the corporate sphere. Sure. Uh, what were you studying at Nottingham at the time? Uh, economics. It's, it's really interesting because, um, so my first company that I did, I was at Bristol Uni, uh, and that was um, essentially started off doing student events and then got a bit more legitimate doing um, some bigger kind of corporate events as well. But it's interesting how many people start off when they're students doing stuff like that. And actually, you know, it's pretty stressful, as I'm sure you you found out similar to I did when you're you're organising events um, and and trying to get people along and manage the finances when you know absolutely nothing. If that's the first business you've ever done, um, but it's quite a good like boot camp uh, for, for doing yeah. future, future uh, sort of um, business ventures. Yeah, exactly right. And those are great in terms of you 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 have a backing, right? You're a university, 
you're out alone, you have a lot of spare time, you're still studying for something. So it's a lot easier to actually start things there, whether or not they're serious, but it's great to like learn the ropes. And how did you then get into health? So, I mean, you went obviously from there into biotech and things like that, but you've landed in health. How did you make that journey and, and why are you so interested in health and health tech investing at the moment? I mean, yeah, so I'm, I'm a health background of family. So I have about, I think it's 20 plus GPs. Uh, dad's a GP, mum's a drug rep, brother's in there. So I'm definitely been around the health landscape my whole life. Um, it was quite funny actually when I was about 16, 17, I was choosing my A-levels and I decided economics, geography and physics. Um, and was just basically decided I wanted to do economics or physics. And, uh, my mother, she said to me, why don't you just take another two years out, uh, redo your A-levels and then you can do medicine. So I've definitely <laughs> been in an environment where health is at the forefront. That's kind of been my background. So it's always been in the the background of me wanting to do health, I guess. Maybe if I hit in the forefront, I didn't think I did. Uh, so then from there, it was kind of biotech, which is very similar to health. And then when I came to Oxford, we were kind of going in these specialized areas. And I was happy to look into the kind of health side. And then why I'm interested in health, but, um, and bear in mind, I'm obviously an economist, so that's why I'm saying this. But but for me, I like to split it into kind of macro, micro, and then kind of personal side for me. So on the macro side, I think everyone will admit health is massive. But you're looking at a point where for the last about 20 years, the health spending has grown by about 2% over GDP spent, spent which means that by about 2050, all OECD countries will spend about a fifth of their GDP on health. And then by about 2070, the US and Switzerland are going to spend about half their GDP just on health. Hopefully that doesn't happen. I think it will be less than that. But even if they're spending a third, for example, I think that's a massive, massive area. And you can see how big of an opportunity, of a big an opportunity there is. On the micro side, I, I think we're finally seeing some key inflection points of where I think health is going to be really, really big. I think the first one is consumerization of health. It's finally having some evidence. I think historically it's been quite, the incentive structures haven't been there. But we're seeing some interesting companies coming through that are actually doing that. For example, Natural Cycles or um, Clue or Babylon, for example, um, as well as one of our portfolio companies, LV, which is using a breast pump uh, for females, which is really interesting. So we're actually finally seeing that consumer side. I think away from there, the usual buzzword of interoperability, you know, hopefully in three to five years, we're going to see that really prosper and open APIs open which will be really interesting. Um, and away from there, I think we're just seeing a much more of a paradigm shift of people having preventative health, self-care health, um, predictive health, and really a paradigm shift in the healthcare industry. I think people are willingness to take on tech and harness tech. 
and be at the forefront of that, whereas historically that hasn't happened. So I think there's a massive opportunity there. Away from there as well, if you're looking at the big tech companies, which some people say you maybe shouldn't, but I'm, I'm fine too, it's showing there as well, right? I mean, you're seeing Apple, Amazon, um, even Microsoft you know, wanting to move into the healthcare landscape. And if you're looking at them in the next 20 years, you could f- fundamentally maybe even think of them as healthcare companies in the future. So for us and myself, you know, I think health is an amazing opportunity that hasn't really been touched on and is massively growing. And then from a personal point, I think... For me, it's always been about mission-driven startups. I think that was really solidified during my biotech experience. And for me, that's really interesting. Um, Every company that we look at pretty much have that mission. And for every time it's, and every time they succeed, it's going to actually help people in the future, which is really interesting. And and it's something which I'm very proud to be a part of. I think one of the one of the big things you touched on there is um, even this week, uh, sort of you know J.P. Morgan, um, Amazon, the company, uh, health tech company Haven, um, as it's now named, and then also um, Apple with what they're doing with um, uh, sort of sensor data and uh, EKG data combined with electronic health records is really really interesting. Um, what you know, where do you see those bigger companies? sitting in in the space in say you know five ten years time and and equally some of the companies that we see come up who are dealing with perhaps some of those um uh those areas of health tech how do you see those integrating do you think that's going to be sort of an aqua hire type environment as they grow and expand into europe um do you think there is going to be sort of a segregation more so between the us and uk markets in the future yeah I i think for the big tech companies they're very much B2C, the consumer. So I think they're going to be very much focused on the consumer side. And I think they're going to be one of the reasons why there's a paradigm shift into consumer health, um, which is what I'm really interested by for them to them to do that kind of area, just because they have the, the backing of the consumer already. And for them moving into it, there's a little bit more trust, I think, um, for, for you to have that consumer side. And a great example there is Apple, right? Um, they've been able to allow people to measure their um, cardiac health in a much easier way, which has historically been quite hard, especially from an incentive side. So if they can really push that out and and measure an EKG in a very good way, I think that could be very interesting. And then the second point, yeah, I mean, I think there will always be consolidation. I think there will be aqua hires. Um, You can see that with Verily, et cetera. Um, but I, I don't see them moving into Europe that time soon. I think they're focusing on the FDA and truly trying to win the US market at the moment. But when they do, yeah, I, I think there's going to be big consolidation in the European market. And for, for you, sort of person, you, you mentioned sort of the B2C market. And again, part of the, um, um, the difficulty with GDP is, is, running things like outpatient services and, and non-emergent um, outpatient sort of uh, inpatient encounters. Um, are you specifically looking at, I guess, a little bit like we are, um, a lot of the technology that will bypass the traditional um, healthcare setting uh, and allow people to 
maybe take more control of the disease if they're a chronic disease sufferer um, or, or you know, diagnostically pick things up earlier uh, to avoid um, that, that deeper spend um, when a diagnosis is picked up a little bit later on into the disease pathway? Yeah, no, definitely. I think preventive healthcare, self-care is massively important. And I think we are seeing millennials, especially, again, from that consumer side, even from the business B2B side, People are actually willing to have their own self-care at the forefront, whereas historically it's been, I'm ill, I go to the hospital, rather than I may be ill, I need to take care of myself. Uh, and that's really where I'm really interested by the predictive side, because if we can have more population level systems in place and the technology where we can make people predict themselves, so they can say, look, if you carry on the way you are in the next five years, you're going to be a lot worse. Um, and we have the actual data to back it and people are more willing to actually take that to head. I think we are going to see more of those self-management tools. And then away from there, I think if you're looking at the burden of the NHS anywhere from the healthcare systems, reducing emissions and then unneeded emissions, it varies very, very important. And even readmissions, for chronic illnesses, people being able to do it themselves instead of having to, you know, actually go in and have these checks within hospital settings which aren't needed is very, very important and an easy win, I think, for most healthcare systems. I think it is interesting how that B2C model really enables, I guess, a, a system whereby people invest in their own health, they become healthy, they might prevent certain health conditions, and then they end up sort of never accessing NHS services, which is a huge benefit to the NHS, although the NHS would never thank them for it. I think we seem to hold ourselves to such a higher standard of what health is at the moment as individuals. And as you're right, we, we do pay for things that prevent health conditions, that track them, that give us that data. And as you say, we're willing to do that ourselves. And doubling down on that b2c consumer space i'm not surprised you guys looking at it as much as we are simply because it has so many benefits both to the individuals and the healthcare system in general you know apps like sleepio or headspace or calm all these things that can help prevent these mental health conditions and keep us in that state of optimized health um they stand to benefit not only the individual as you say but the um the whole uk health system in general yeah, and, and and if you think of it from a phrase that's overused probably, but I love it, is this is healthcare, not sick care. And that's what we should focus on. And we've historically been quite reactive rather than proactive. And being reactive is never good. If you can stop someone a lot earlier or stop them having that at all, is much better and much cheaper than if you, you know wait for them to have stage three cancer, for example. Um, and a great example there is predictive health, which I'm super interested by, right? Um, I think that's going to have a new paradigm for health in terms of, you know, what DeepMind are doing with their uh, seeing someone deteriorating within a hospital, but then also for acute conditions, right? So if you're looking at it from, a, say, a sudden cardiac arrest, um, within the basic time, it matters for everything within that. So... I think the survival rate is about 50% um, in the first minute. And then it drops by about 
10 to 20% for every minute you, you stop. So that first minute is very, very important from a actually survival point of view, but then also from a brain damage is really important as well. So the longer you take to cure someone from sodium cardiac, from that um, acute injury or condition is a massive, it's a massive boon. So if you can predict five minutes before, 20 minutes before, which we've never been done before, um, and actually have a new paradigm of being able to cure that is massive. And from an investment perspective, are you guys therefore looking at pathways like that and trying to find companies that are actively benefiting specific parts of those pathways? I'm sure um, quite a lot of the startups and entrepreneurs listening would be quite keen to hear the answer, answer to. As in, do you mean... Do we look at an acute condition? Yeah. So, for, so from an invest, yeah. So from an investment perspective, are you picking certain pathways, i.e., that cardiac pathway there, and saying, you know, here's the certain parts where we think we can predict better or gain time or improve flow, all those different things? Are you looking at pathways like that and then going out there to the market trying to find companies that can actively improve certain parts of that? Uh, yes. So for us, you know, we're looking at chronic conditions, sudden conditions, and anything like that, and really trying to find our specialties within there. One of my colleagues is really interested in diabetes, right? And the chronic management of that. So really having a specialty there. Um, we're really looking into what we call taboo right now. So looking at the health side that has never really been talked about in the future or historically. So you're looking here at fertility, um, especially on the male side, personally. Um, so in the last 15 years, a male sperm rate had dropped by about 50%. And there's no real opportunities there that's been done there. But then other things like erectile dysfunction, men, um, female health, and any other kind of taboo subjects like that, that haven't really been touched, but are massive, is something where we're really interested by. So yeah, we're definitely driven by what actual what conditions are actually out there and then what we can improve it. Cool. And for those companies that approach you that might say fit into that diabetes pathway or the cardiac pathway, as you've mentioned, what advice would you give to any company approaching you looking to get investment from you? I think it depends on the stage. So earlier stage, it's very weighted on the founders. And especially within the healthcare system, the experience of the founders have. So we're a little bit less lenient compared to other se sectors probably, especially on the more consumer side, et cetera, just because of the complexities of the healthcare systems. So for us, we see some amazing products and some amazing entrepreneurs who are, have a clinical background, you know, they understand that market. But the hardest thing within healthcare is really the distribution and sales. So for us, really having a weighting of the founding team having that experience. And then away from there, I think everyone in this industry will admit that evidence is very, very important. A deck of slides without any evidence of it working usually doesn't mean much 
compared to other industries, it's probably where you can let that go and let that slide. But for us, we really want some evidence. Great example there is our portfolio, Big Health, um, which did CPO. You know, they were lucky enough that they're in the cognitive behavioral therapy um, industry, which meant that there was a lot of evidence to show that it worked. You know, if they came to us without that, um, we probably wouldn't have looked at it as intensely and maybe not have even invested. So really having that robust evidence to show that the product works is really interesting and super important to us. And then away from there, when you're looking from a later stage, more on the consumer side and less away from the more frontier technologies, which may go through FDA regulations, right? We are looking for product market fit. There's some evidence there that users use it or you have a great example there is the insurance industry, right? Health insurance industries. Having people actually be a part of that and having evidence of customers. But then it depends on the startup, right? So we're looking at, again, companies going through FDA regulation, C marking, et cetera, and they're going through clinical trials. And they've maybe done a clinical trial before, but this is going to be more robust for their FDA. And they're raising a Series A. So they don't necessarily have product market fit. But if they're on that frontier side, we're still willing to look at them. Okay, cool. And you talk about evidence, right? So for even the early stage ones, you said, you know, some some level of evidence would be great. And you mentioned Sleepio, um, who obviously came to you with uh, a trial, some evidence. It's a contentious point, isn't it? Because there's a huge chicken and egg between getting a trial and getting evidence. Um, in order to get evidence, you tend to need a trial, but in order to get a trial, you often need evidence. So particularly in a kind of acute set care setting or something that disrupts one of those pathways that you talked about before, it's really difficult to get that evidence and, and, and do it. In something like CBT, perhaps a little bit easier, perhaps if you do have a clinician co-founder and things like that. What do you think is an appropriate level of evidence for something? You know, what did Sleepio actually come to you with? Was it a really small study? Was it a huge, enormous study and an RCT, you know, randomized control trials and things like that? Um, where do you sort of draw the line as, as appropriate evidence? Well, I mean, with CBT, right, there was external studies done. So for them, yeah. it was quite easy. Um, away from there, any usage of the actual product is really great. And I completely agree with you. It's definitely a contentious issue. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's from a point of, should we do the normal paradigm of VC where fail fast, you know, go through as much as you can. And can you do that within the health industry? Because considering if you fail, there's a matter of life or death potentially at this point. So for me, I'm always on the fence here. I, I can't decide which way to go. At the moment, I think we're very based around the more conservative side of the evidence. And I think we can move a little bit more to the liberal side of failing fast, but not too much. Um, and then for us, level of evidence is, um, again, it depends on the company, but a 50-person trial with some type of evidence is really interesting. Some level of usage of the of people actually using it. And then actually, if there is an ability to show 
the benefits to the pa- the patients is really important. So those are the more evidence side, but then you're also looking in the health industry. It's not just about the patient, right? If you're looking from a point of view of the back end side of health, you don't need evidence there, right? I mean, something like telemedicine, um, you know, something like ZogDoc or that's really back end. Um, again, again, with the kind of locums net, which is like locums for GPs, et cetera. You don't necessarily need evidence there. Um, so it really does depend on the health startup. I think that's a good point. I think the what, what startups often could make more use of is is piggybacking on the evidence that has been done. So for example, you don't necessarily need to see um, a specific app being used in order to say that the type of thing that it does works. So for example, as you've said with Sleepier, you know, CBT has a huge amount of evidence behind it. The new thing was just delivering it via an app. So actually going to you guys with with all these reams of um, studies that, that show that CBT worked is obviously enough because all you're really doing is just changing the delivery mechanism, I suppose you could call it. So I think that's a really good point and, and something that, that can definitely be actioned by quite a lot of the people listening, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's the most important part, right? especially when you're patient focused, just because it, for one, we're in this to help people, but secondly, it won't sell if it doesn't. Um, but I do agree. I, it's a massive chicken, the egg in the industry. Well, like, um, you know, some people just really overcomplicate the, the evidence play within healthcare. So, I mean, you know, any, any business, if it's, um, uh, you know, just a, a SaaS services business for a, a, a company, say like a CRM company or something like that, well, where, where is your evidence for that? Well, it's it's actually your daily active users. It's how it improves the business outcomes. It's how it improves cost effectiveness for your customers in, in that respect. And, you know, for um, the companies like, you know, your Locums Nest, the services, their, you know, their case studies are all about um, saving money and saving costs. So their evidence in inverted commas is, is how the platform works. And really, you know, the only difference between that and, um, companies like your your big health and, and the ones that are patient facing is that because they are directly impacting patient care, they quite rightly need um, uh, clinical trials associated with them. So that essentially is a uh, the evidence pathway and the evidence generation is longer and it goes through different routes. But effectively, from your overall business, it's it's fundamentally saying the same thing, which is we've built something that patients uh, can benefit from. And we've demonstrated that with with some numbers, essentially. Um, so I, th- I think a lot of the time, you know, especially when companies know that they're going to be doing patient facing stuff from day one, um, they, they can you know overthink it or overcomplicate it sometimes. And you really, it's just sort of you know back to your your startup basics, which is how do we know we're creating something that our customers, our patients love and will use and will benefit um, from using. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Right. And they're going back to this fail fast side, right? It's quite hard to put something that may not work. And a lot of it's based around, I mean, if it doesn't work, people probably won't use it again, right? Compared to other industries. But you need to have evidence. I need to see if your product even works. Because otherwise, it's just tech for tech's sake. You've got a tunnel vision. It doesn't make sense. No one actually uses it. It doesn't help anyone. Um, and I think a lot of people in Europe and I don't even think it's health industry. I think it's the whole of Europe. 
we're very much based around let's build the best product we can and then we'll launch it rather than we need to test this. We don't even know if this works. Um, even if even if it does work, do people want to use it at this point in time? And who are our target customers? And I mean, there's always going to be an inherent risk with, uh, you know, with new companies and raising um, any sort of money, whether it's angel, whether it's venture capital. So that that is part of the course. But um, the, as exactly as you say, you know, um, the the research and the evidence behind some of these early stage companies uh, needs to be relatively robust if, if you're going to be raising certainly the seed rounds. Um, interest to know, say, from, from your background, obviously starting off as an entrepreneur um, and um, then you know, switching over to the, um, the VC side of the table, what were some of your sort of big, I guess, you know, learning points were, that you might not have appreciated previously as, a, as an entrepreneur? I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely more empathetic as a VC. Because I know what it's like to get 50 no's and then a yes, which is really interesting. Um, I think that's the I think that's the main one, and really understanding kind of market dy- dynamics and how hard it is to build a company, and especially get through the first two years, right? When you don't have a product, you don't really have anything, you have no money, you can't hire anyone, and how hard it is to do that in a really good way. Um, whereas I think maybe some other VCs who have just been through VCs and haven't actually seen how hard that is may have less empathy for that and just think everything should be stellar, best in class, whereas sometimes that may not happen. And I, I guess, you know, looking back to the, you know, the entrepreneur side of the table, once, um, say, for example, someone... Uh, come through they've got that evidence they've got some early stage customers they've got some traction with their product and, and they're probably just about at the stage where they're they're ready for some rocket fuel in the form of some form of investment from somewhere um what what do you see with with things like you know entrepreneurs coming to you with with valuations where, where are you seeing sort of you know valuations for healthcare companies in the space in general at the moment um, and what advice would you give entrepreneurs when they're, they're you know setting their their valuations and their cap tables yeah, I mean, so within the health industry, a lot of them are going to be for revenue, right? Especially seed. Uh, even though, like I said before, you know, Series A, even those are pre-revenue. So the usual valuation way is either market dynamics. So you're looking at, you know, your revenue and then revenue multiples from there, from previous exit, which if you can't, if you have any revenue, you can't do. Um, so the other way is really dilution and how much you want to be actually diluted. So the kind of usual average is 20 to 30%, um, especially for a VC. Angels may be a bit less. So like 15 to 20% or 25%. So really just focusing on that. So historically what I've seen for quite a few is that they value themselves too high early doors and when you're doing that round it makes sense for yourself because you're obviously being diluted less it's quite a nice ego boost to actually have that but the big problem there is if you really want rocket fuel in VC overvaluing yourself doesn't help you in the future just because when you're looking at the next round you have to increase by that amount 
So a great example there is your pre-revenue, for example, you're looking at a 500K round and you're trying to value yourself at 10 million. Great for yourself. You know, you're not being diluted that much. But then 18 months time, you know, you're at, let's say, well, I mean, you're pre-revenue, right? So even in 18 months time, to get to a million pound revenue, ARR is pretty big and you're doing very well for yourself. So by that 12 month time, when you're starting to fundraise again, say you're at maybe a million when you're lucky, even under then, kind of 10x on revenue is pretty high. So even if you're doing that amazingly well, if you go to the VC side and say, we were valued at 10 million then, they're going to say, well, going by these metrics at normal valuation or even dilution for, say, a million, two million round you're looking for, you'll be valued at 10 million. So you're at a middle ground or a flat round rather, or even worse, which is what I've seen, a down round. So you're being valued lower than your previous round, which dilutes you more, does not tell you a good story. And if you want to keep funding after that, it's going to be even worse. So the, the only thing I would say is, do you want to build a company and own 40% of a 10 million pound company? Or do you want to earn 10% of a billion pound plus company? And when you're looking at this industry, you should really be looking for that billion because it is rocket fuel, like you said. If you want to make a lifestyle business, then probably shouldn't be looking at the the VC industry. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's really on looking at the future and the 18 months and valuation should be, will I actually be able to raise again in 12 months time? And will it be an up round, you know, 50% on top of that? Obviously, you know, first time entrepreneurs, especially in the health tech space, might know absolutely nothing about how to set a valuation, how to um, actually do that properly. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously one thing that, that people do is, is look at comparative data, i.e., you know, what other companies in the sort of same space um, have raised up for them. And, and obviously that can be found in things like Crunchbase, um, PitchBook, um, and things like that. And I guess, you know, in, in the UK, the um, the, the stats at the moment are, are that companies tend to raise, you know, around about a mil to, to um, sometimes just over two mil um, at seed with, with average valuations sitting around about, you know, 3.5 mil median, um, four mil um, in, in the health tech sector sort of from, uh, from last year's data. Um, what do you think about those? Are you, um, are you looking at, do you have sort of a set valuation that you would, apply to every single company you see or is it very much negotiation based on stage traction and team it'll always be a negotiation side and then from there you know we're not looking for more than for example 30 percent as a dilution in a round right so it really depends on how much they're raising and like the normal dilution from there you know if it's an amazing company and they're really competitive and they're growing amazingly you know they've done that or they have history of execution, you could probably reduce that dilution. But yeah, I mean, a 20 to 30% dilution kind of makes sense. So, you know, a million pounds raising at a 4 million valuation is kind of where it sits. 
free money. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, um, you know, certainly when you start off raising an entrepreneur, very few people will, I guess, you know, counsel you. So it's, you know, sometimes you, you, you basically just learn by trial and error of speaking to multiple different people and then um, lots of different firms. And, and certainly, as you alluded to earlier, angels um, may have different appetites for different valuations. Um, for entrepreneurs who are, who, you know, coming to uh, people like yourselves at a, a VC fund, um, what advice would you give to them, I suppose, on their, you know, their mentality of, of how they actually approach you? Should they come with a, a set valuation or should they, they come and have a discussion around where they think it should sit in, in the current sort of market rate? Yeah, I mean, I think there should always be a discussion because at the end of the day, this is a future position as well. So when we first invest, you know, we're going to want to invest again in 18 months time, usually with another lead, um, external lead usually. And that you'll always be pushing more and more VC funds to help you in that regard. So having a good valuation makes sense for both sides, right? In terms of a low valuation from for us would be really good. But in the future, it may be bad for us in the end as well. So I think it's just making sure we have a good dilution on both sides. Um, because if we, for example, if we diluted the company too much, founders had less at such, at such a low stage, you know, they wouldn't want to work themselves. So it kind of doesn't make sense for us to take too much. And then, like I said before, if the company is valued too high, which is great for the founders in that they're not diluted less, it's very hard for them. A lot, a lot of the time, unless they're amazing to really raise another around in an 18 months because they're just overvalued. And if they do raise a round, it'll be very much a down round where they get diluted more than they would have had before anyway. So it's really thinking of the future and really looking at after this raise, what are we doing next? Historically, what have we done in the next two years? What do we expect to do in the next, in, in terms of revenue growth or key milestones that we're going to do? And how does that relate to, the, to a potential valuation? I think that's really great advice, and and obviously we've you know we fixate a little bit there on um, the the cash uh, and valuation side of things, but obviously when um, uh, startups are looking for investment, um, the 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 big thing really, other than um, the actual monetary investment, is obviously value add and and what um, a, a firm uh, or investors can add to their company. So uh, Octopus, with a, a good pedigree of of investments in the healthcare space, what sort of things? can you offer or, or, or can you sort of help um, early stage companies um, do once you once you invest in them? Yeah, so VC is not just about money, right? Especially now. So if you're just talking about money, you know, we're able to follow on pretty much throughout the whole life cycle of the company because we have an evergreen fund. So we don't have a point in time where we have to sell off, which is really interesting. So we can invest up to 25 million in later stages, which is really interesting. Away from there, kind of our value add is the usual kind of VC side of network. But away from there, we actually have a New York office. So there's four people there, purely there as a port as a portfolio play. And they really help our portfolio actually thinking about or wanting to move to the US. So what we found is 
over half our portfolio have either looked at or wanted to move to the US. And the US is a completely different beast, right? It's very hard to scale there, especially as a Brit. Um, the culture differences, especially. And obviously within health, it's a completely different industry. So for us, having boots on the ground, people helping our portfolio, how to move to the US, in a normal VC way of network, pushing to names, et cetera. But actually away from their talent, you know, how the hell do you get a visa? You know, how do you set up somewhere? Where do you set up? How, the, how to hire talent? Um, even marketing is completely different there. So having boots on the ground people there is really helpful. Away from there, we also have 10 venture partners who kind of underpin us. And these guys are experts in their fields, previous entrepreneurs who have specific expertise in growing a startup. So you've got people like Howard Bell, who is ex-head of product of PayPal. It's amazing at a product pipeline. But people like Stephen Marana, who is ex-CFO of Betfair and Zoopla. So amazing at um, the kind of financial side and really growing a company to an IPO. As well as an amalgamation of other things from sales to regionals to how to hire talent, which is really interesting for our portfolio. And then away from there, we also have you know, 70 portfolio companies. And they all share an email list, connect to each other. And just, you know, most startups, they have quite a few of the same problems, just some other areas within their specific sector. But those same problems, you can really learn from other entrepreneurs. So having 70 other entrepreneurs in your portfolio who are all talking to each other and helping each other is really interesting. I mean, I, th I think, uh, you know, we, we've covered some, some really, really important ground there, both for um, entrepreneurs, for angel investors, um, and for, for other VCs in the sector. So just before we, uh, we wrap up, it's been, it's been great speaking to you on, on the podcast. Um, where can um, people find a bit more information about um, how to sort of approach or contact the team at Octopus or a bit more about Octopus as a, um, a VC firm. Um, and then we'll hand basically over to you um, for any asks or, or shout outs if you're after any specific startups in specific areas of healthcare or elsewhere. Um, and then we'll let you close out. Great. Yeah, so Octopus Ventures, you know, we're, we're a generous fund, but I'm focusing just on health. Away from there, best way to reach me is gian at octopusventures.com, which is my email. So G-I-A-N at octopusventures.com. What we're looking at and what we're really interested by is kind of what we touched on, you know, preventative health, predictive health, self-care, especially for the chronic conditions and um, any of those. Away from there, we're currently doing a massive deep dive into the kind of taboo sector. So if you're really interested in that kind of area and have expertise, or you're actually building a company in that area, definitely interested in speaking to you. Um, away from there, you can reach me on Twitter at Gian Sira. So G-I-A-N-S-E-E-H-R-A. -E -E uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much us in, a, in, a, in the best way.